Hey, good people. Cat here. Thanks for tuning in. So while I was in Amsterdam, I spent some time with Ida Kip and we talked about many things, but primarily how she and her sister got to the point of creating Free Hitty Hitty for All. It was such an illuminating conversation that I decided it was best to break this up into two parts so that you could digest because I care about you. So welcome to part one. In this episode, we're going to learn about Ida's origin story and the effects the murder of George Floyd had on her activism. Check the show notes for additional links and resources and the final takeaways are going to be in part two. Oh, and just in case, there is some adult language during our conversation and discussions on violence perpetuated against black people. So please be mindful that this is not suitable for all ages. We're going to grade it pumpkin 16. So 16 and older might be, you know, it's fine. But under 16, we're going to keep the baby's ears away from this one. All right. So with that, let's get into it. Hope you enjoy it. Greetings, 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 and welcome to another edition of Cat's Corner of the Podcast. I'm your host, Rissa Cat, Cat Okaday, and I am recording this live from Amsterdam. This is my last day. I'm very excited to share all the things that I've done, but even more excited about my special guest today. Um, for a lot of folks who don't know, I've been here since the 24th of June, working on the Free Hitty Hitty Festival campaign. We're going to get into a lot more about what that is, but I have one of the co-founders of this amazing um, experience. Uh, she is, you know, one half of Kip Republic, Ida Kip. I've known her for quite some time. I don't even remember when I try to think back, what was the day or the moment? I can't, I feel like you've always been in my life. So welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so we're going to get all in your business today about everything that you're doing with this particular project. Um, I'm calling this episode Culture Over Clout because I think what you all are doing is really making sure that the culture is is at the center of everything. So can you first tell the good people, if you were an adjective, what would that adjective be? What's an adjective? So it is a word that is used to describe a noun. Okay. To like what? pretty, like a pretty flower or a big man. Like, okay. So... Um, Ida was an adjective. See, even in in Dutch uh, language, I struggle with adjectives and nouns. <laughs> My God, um, re- rebel moon. Rebel. Okay, so rebel. I think rebel, rebel. is a different. Yeah, I think um, while that is not necessarily an ad- rebellious. Okay, rebellious. More rebellious, rebellious person. Yeah, yes. we could do it that way. You've always been though. As far as long as I've known, you've always been for the culture. Yes, you've always held it down. So. Can you talk a little bit about the making of you? How do you think you became this person? I think through my parents. Okay. Absolutely. My mother comes from um, an island, um, from humble ha- from a humble household, but also from an environment where she wasn't necessarily part of... Uh, how should I put this? My mother grew up with... She's from two parents who were separated. Mm-hmm. When my grandmother had her, by choice, my grandmother decided not to raise her. And my grandfather took her um, feeling like he had no choice. Mm-hmm. So it was actually uh, my mom's uncle and aunt that ended up raising my mother. And this resulted in my mother uh, being somewhat of a loner, but always being able to, you know, stand on her own, mm-hmm. very independent. Right. And my father 
comes from a very tight-knit family, actually, mm-hmm. um, born and raised in Suriname, and, uh, but left the country also at a very young, early age with the aspiration to become a doctor mm-hmm. and um, did end up working in healthcare as a nurse, but also independent. Mm-hmm. My parents both are people who really um, had to do for themselves. Mm-hmm. And my father even more so, because my father also believed that as a a Surinamese man, Mm -hmm. that you should stand on your own feet. Mm -hmm. And I remember being young and hearing my father say that he wouldn't want to have to work for someone, and particularly the white man. Mm -hmm. Um, So I call my father a Renaissance man, because he was really, I think, also... um, revolutionary in how he uh, built his career right always had uh, made space for black women Mm -hmm. and my mother was very much of an activist so uh, and my mom my mom's activism came from a lot of racial tension and uh, issues within the own her own family right and so these elements and they maybe they didn't even consciously raise us with some of these uh, very profound values. Mm-hmm. But uh, when you're raised by a mother who's an activist and a father who's a Renaissance man, both from the Caribbean region, uh, South America, with African Latino culture, you're raised to always turn something into nothing and to try to persevere right. in everything that you do. Right. So this is my foundation. And then... Also, growing up in Amsterdam in the 80s, I grew up in Southeast. I feel like um, we were thought to be grateful and thankful to be able to participate in the quote-unquote Dutch dream. Mm. Um, But I think my parents and we always knew that we were destined to be greater than that. Right. You know? I know what the American dream is supposed to symbolize. What does the Dutch dream symbolize? Like, what's the context uh, around the Dutch dream? I feel like the Dutch dream is different for what, which Dutch are you? Yeah. Just like what American right. are you? Right. So for us, I am assuming from what I've seen growing up, the time that I grew up, I'm 41 now. I think that for my parents who came from a very, you know, a present colonial heritage, mm-hmm. The dream was to just be able to participate yeah. and and to have equal opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I think for my dad, probably even more so to just be independently successful. Right. You know, and so I think that uh, because also at the time when my parents came here and we were growing up, I did not experience the Netherlands as a capitalist society. So the dream for bigger and great and humongous things or things that you can define as such wasn't really the case here because uh, we didn't really grow up under capitalism. So getting, uh, you know, having a nice home, uh, being comfortable, uh, that was already you know, a lot that you can ask for. Right. So getting that, you were winning. You were you were already yeah. winning. Right. You know, and looking back on one hand, I think that my parents thrived and also that they were winning. But I also feel like my parents had to deal with exclusion, 
racism mm-hmm. wasn't necessarily always equality. Right. So I do feel like that they did what they could, they or they dreamed that they had a vision or they dreamed the most they could under the circumstances. Right. So you grow up in a household, because I remember coming to visit you when you were in the old apartment, and we talked about 12 Years a Slave, and you made this really, I thought it was a profound moment, because I had not ever thought about it that way, because I am a third culture kid being a first-gen American, um, and I don't necessarily see the world specifically from an American lens, but you, we were talking about that movie, and you were saying that a lot of movies that, a lot of the culture around enslavement often is dealing specifically with sort of the, what happens to those who are forced to North America, specifically, you know, what we know as America. And I was like, wow, that's really important to, to know, you know, to think about it that way. But then you also mentioned that growing up in your household, everyone was required to read um, The Blood is in the Sugar. Um, that book. That, in Dutch, yeah. it's it's called Hoe duur is de suiker, mm-hmm. which translates to How Expensive is the Sugar. How Expensive is the Sugar, yeah. Yeah, it's a book by Cynthia McLeod. She's a legendary writer uh, from Suriname. Mm-hmm. And uh, the book is very important because the book describes the uh, transatlantic slave trade from the Surinamese perspective Mm -hmm. and then also from the enslaved perspective. And um, I think the most fascinating part in the book is how there's a group of enslaved that uh, were able to run away into the jungle in Suriname and create their own community. And then even with that, the uh, oppressors tried to go into the jungle mm-hmm. and catch them, right. and they couldn't deal with the ecological circumstances right. of the jungle. So there was like a maroon community. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, how expensive is the sugar in Surinamese households, culture? This is like, you know, this is like a standard book, right. you know, that we read. And um, I didn't read it until I was older. But I read it, let me say, I read how expensive is the sugar when I was able to understand Mm -hmm. it and what it meant. And when you read that book, what does that do for your... Like, you're already coming up in a household where you have these two very strong parental figures who are very clear about what freedom means to them. Yeah. Um, And then you read this book. Yeah. And then, so what happens? Like, what does that do for you? Mm, I think what how expensive is the sugar? Who dear is the suiker? What that book did for me is understand better how Amsterdam was built. Mm. So not necessarily what happened across the pound, right. you know, us being in Amsterdam, what happened in Suriname, but how the streets of Amsterdam, the streets that I grew up in, how they was built off of the backs of the people that were in Suriname. Mm-hmm. On the plantations. So I looked at the city of Amsterdam different Mm. after I read that book. And I also got a greater understanding of the Jewish culture Mm -hmm. and the heritage Mm -hmm. of the Jewish community in Suriname, which Mm -hmm. I wasn't as familiar with before. And so, so for instance, family names, Mm -hmm. um, I started to understand better where the names came from. And I understand parts of our culture better, uh, like, for instance, our food culture mm-hmm. and the identity of our food, the DNA. Um, so I was able to, I think, with the, the book, was able to 
have language and imagery of my surroundings and it just it just became a lot more visible and mm -hmm. also the history became more tangible mm -hmm. especially when you go to the city center of Amsterdam on the canals so mm -hmm. if you are a tourist you're listening to this you're a tourist and you visiting Amsterdam and you're um, strolling through the, these beautiful canals and you see these buildings pay attention because you'll see references and also you'll start to understand how this was built and who built it. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an example? Yeah, there will be faces of Negroes on the buildings. Okay. Um, I say Negroes because that's what, in back in time, in yeah. the context, that's what they were right. um, uh, defined as. Also, you see pakhuizen. So pakhuizen are like, it's like uh, warehouses. Okay. You see a lot of buildings. If you look at the buildings mm -hmm. really well, you can see that they were warehouses. Okay. And the spaces are really large. You'll also see names on the buildings of places where either trade came from mm -hmm. or trade was going to. Okay. So there's a lot of history in the architecture, not in the architecture, but in the brick and mortar of the city. What I do find... What is interesting here is that um, I've known you to be someone who is very um, consistent about checking people and letting them know when they're messing up when it comes to black folks and black imagery. And I think the last time I was here, we talked a little bit about how the Dutch responds to being checked. It's a bit. It seems to be a little bit different than what happens in the country that I come from. And I wanted to talk a little bit about you know, how you think the work that you're doing around culture keeping is being perceived by those people who essentially are descendants of these colonizers and enslavers. Like when you, I remember, I think there was an issue with the museum and you wrote this very long and important message to the museum director about how that they, how they were featuring things. I can't remember the context, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And nobody asked you to do that. You just was like, look, somebody needs to say something, so I'm going to say something. Mm -hmm. And it can be a very lonely place to be that person pointing out places where you're messing up. And so I wonder, before we get into, you know, free hitty hitty, when you are doing this work, like, how do you make the decision when to speak up? Like, what, what does that entail for you? And how does it, how does it work? How do, they, how do they respond to the criticisms? Yeah. So I don't think I actively look for where people are fucking up, but sometimes things will just come mm -hmm. on my radar. And I feel that when I see that someone is messing up, when it's an institution or a person or an organization that carries a certain responsibility, mm -hmm. one, and also that uh, positions itself or pretends to be uh, an inclusive space mm -hmm. or to to uh, curate work that is for everybody, then I feel that if I do notice that um, they are either using language that's not inclusive or they uh, their work is actually offensive mm -hmm. to other people, then I feel like, okay, I, maybe I should say something about it. Also, I've become a little bit more petty since the Black Lives Matter movement. <laughs> okay. So Is it petty though? Um, is petty the right word? Well, maybe it's not. I don't know. But it's like 
I've become, maybe I shouldn't say petty then, maybe I should say I've become a little more unapologetic mm -hmm. when it comes to checking people. Right. Because since the Black Lives Matter movement, I feel like a lot of people were promoting themselves to be, mm -hmm. um, how do you say? As allies and sort of in alignment with it and supporting yeah, yeah, and supporting, supporting the movement and also associating themselves to uh, be part of the movement. Mm -hmm. I think uh, a lot of those people, if you ask them, people, institutions, organizations, if you ask them, uh, what is Black Lives Matter? Mm -hmm. I don't know if they even know the answer. Right. So I question sometimes why why does it matter to you? Mm -hmm. What does it mean? And Black Lives Matter in what context? Right. What context? Are we talking about racial profiling? Are we talking about equal opportunities in the jobs industry? Are we talking about safe spaces for LGBTQ, queer, mm -hmm. black children? Mm -hmm. uh, what is it? You know, and I feel like it was the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, the the good thing that it did for the Netherlands is that it's uh, it's allowed uh, for more unpacking mm -hmm. of institutional systems mm -hmm. that are in place and that are perpetuating exclusion and uh, oppression on certain communities. Right. And when you talk about Black Lives Matter, you're specifically talking about the moment when George Floyd was murdered and how there was just sort of this global eruption around this particular. Yeah. Um, issue before George Floyd, mm -hmm. was there a sense that there that because Black Lives has existed, I think, since Mike Brown. If we're if we're using these murders as sort of a timeline, I think Mike Brown is one is maybe the first time Ferguson was the first time I saw that being codified as a thing. Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. um, before George Floyd, particularly in the Netherlands, do you feel like that activism was apparent? Yes. Okay. Swarte Piet is racist, right. Black Piet is racist. Black Piet is racist, yes. Yeah, they yeah. got to the people who mm -hmm. have been doing that work, Jeffrey Afrie and many other people who have been doing the work in the Netherlands for a very, very long time to protest against racism, protest against discrimination. Yeah, they've been around. And I think that the Black Lives Matter movement uh, that transition to other countries, I think it it supported their work. Yeah. And I also think that when the movement hit a peak in the Netherlands, it allowed for them to take even more space. Mm -hmm. And I really think that's a great thing. Right. So, yeah. And how do these institutions, you know, when you... Because, you know, the white guilt economy, which is what I called it, that happens as a result of George Floyd's murder... They're just throwing money at black people. Like in the States, I just felt like there were certain artists and collectives that I'm aware of that were just, people were like, can we give you money? As if somehow being able to throw money at this was going to somehow make it better. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of sort of shaking out of institutions, particularly mm -hmm. that summer, where people were being called to the carpet everywhere from, you know, theater groups to museums to studios. Like there was a whole rush of you all are not, operating as a space mm -hmm. of equity. This white supremacist illness that you all suffer from is, is, is a problem and we need to stop it. And so when I think about the timeline between what happens, particularly as George Floyd being a, you know, a marker, and then when I think about what you have done in the past three years now with Free Hitty Hitty, 
I'm wondering if there's a connection. So if we go back to the the lockdown mm-hmm. and, you know, what that does for people, and mm-hmm. it kind of really forces everyone to stay still. Mm-hmm. The thing about George Floyd is that if everyone remembers that particular situation, we're, we're starting this whole COVID thing. We're having yes. the COVID and shutdowns. And I remember people marching in the streets and having to also be aware that you have to be careful. And mm-hmm. there was this pseudo concern that we can't have these protests happening because, you know, this, this COVID is spreading. And I remember very clearly that very few people, if any, got sick during these marches. This is true. You know, people were out here marching. And very people are also being very careful. Yeah, and being very, very careful mm-hmm. and masking up and still being out in the streets. And it was powerful to see. So when I think back to that moment, I feel like it is a, it's a very clear point of, um, it's like a portal. It's an opportunity for Mm -hmm. a lot of these things to happen. So talk a little bit about, because I love the story you tell about how Free Hitty Hitty goes from being sort of an idea to an actual thing. Mm -hmm. What was the, how did it, how did we get there? Like, what was the the spark that, that led us to this moment? Yeah. Uh, there's, I always say in practice, or um, I'm of the understanding now in practical sense Mm -hmm. and in spiritual sense. Mm -hmm. So in spiritual meaning more so, uh, what the spark was that, uh, was more like the inspiration and what motivated us. And in practical sense, it was, we as an organization, that organization that I represent, Kip Republic, which I run with my twin sister, Ira Kip, the... Kitty Koti Festival, which is the festival in Amsterdam that is organized to commemorate and celebrate 1863, uh, July 1st, um, the day that the Dutch Kingdom abolished uh, slavery within the Dutch Kingdom. And so Kitty Koti, which is a Surinamese word and means uh, shackles unchained, Uh, It's a festival that happens every year. And because of COVID, the Mm -hmm. festival was canceled. And that went for most of the festivals. Everything got canceled. And the Black Lives Matter movement actually reached that peak uh, right before. And we felt like, man, this is so unfortunate that, you know, we are seeing what's happening in the world and in the city Mm -hmm. and in your country. And then Kitty Koti Festival isn't happening. And right. it was also very unclear what was happening with the un, the official commemoration, which happens in the morning. Mm-hmm. And so we said, something's got to get done. We cannot let this day go by and right. just be canceled. So we came up with Free Hiri Hiri uh, as a way to make sure that COVID-proof, mm-hmm. we would still be able to create something that could reach a lot of people right but it turned into something even bigger it wasn't just about reach a lot of people and get people to commemorate uh kitty koti together but it also became a project that brings people together to inclusively commemorate mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. kitty koti and july 1st 1863 and by that i mean that kitty koti is something that has been mostly celebrated within the black community Mm -hmm. in the netherlands particularly the surinamese community Mm -hmm. and um we felt like that in itself is excluding people Mm -hmm. and we feel we have this we've been having so many conversations the trend almost is 
shared history, shared history, shared history. Everybody's talking about shared history, gedeelde geschiedenis, all these shared history projects. <laughs> right. Okay, but who's sharing, you right. know? And so with Kitikoti, we felt like, okay, well then we need to open up this commemoration and uh, celebration. And when I mean open up, get Kitikoti to all the communities in the city, okay. you know, and make sure that everybody that's, that identifies as a citizen of the Netherlands or a resident of the city and is part of this country, that you are all taking part in all the commemorations mm -hmm. that are part of the Dutch kingdom. Mm -hmm. So in May, May 5th, is the commemoration of the Netherlands independence, mm -hmm. Independence Day, and everybody is a part of that. Right. And to an extent that, you know, uh, we just wanted to make sure that uh, we could create something that would reach all communities. If you ask somebody randomly, what's May 5th? Everybody knows. Mm -hmm. And we want the same response with what's July 1st. Right. Everybody knows. Right. So... That is, in practical sense, what we wanted to create and ended up creating. On the other side, I think we also really felt like, you know, this Black Lives Matter movement, I think, touched us personally because I feel that in my family, this was always the case for us. Mm -hmm. You know, we were always making sure or bringing awareness to Black Lives right. Matter. Right. And so for me, I've lost friends over time back in the days who didn't understand that language mm -hmm. and also quite easily thought it was racist mm -hmm. to say Black Lives Matter. Wow. And maybe not those specific words, but that message mm -hmm. wasn't as accepted. Mm -hmm. And for us, you know, honestly, For us, this was something that was always the case. But also, Ida and I are, we are an exception in the sense that, and when I mean an exception, we were raised different. Mm -hmm. And also, we were raised traveling to New York a lot because right. our family lives there. Right. So we've seen from a very young age, we already understood racial tension and mm -hmm. race relations mm -hmm. in from what we've seen in America. And we were able to connect that back home in the Netherlands, right? you know, and so our experience and our understanding of race relations and also the understanding of racial divide versus cultural divide is something that we've, you know, that's always been, this is, Ida and I have been talking this about this since we were 14, right. you know, right. and that's because I've seen my, my family in New York having to work three jobs mm -hmm. in Queens, and I've seen my father being taken to the side at immigration every time mm -hmm. we came into John, John F. Kennedy, mm -hmm. you know. So we've seen and we've experienced this for a very long time, and we've therefore always had shaped our views right. uh, from an early age in regards to this already. So I feel like it gave us space, but back to Free Hiri. To be very honest, what drove me the most mm -hmm. is when we speak about George Floyd and we speak about, you know, he was killed by a cop and, you know, because he was black and all that stuff. 
is true, but for me, it was still very surfaced. Mm -hmm. What I thought was the most problematic thing about it, and I think this is what drove me, is that I wake up and I'm in my bed and I'm looking in my phone mm -hmm. and I'm watching a murder take place. Right. So you wake up, right. you know, and you're thinking, I'm going to have my tea and start my day. And then you check your social media because it's part of your regimen or mm -hmm. whatever. It's a natural thing. And you grab your phone and you get to witness a murder. Right. And so for me, psychologically, that fucked me up. Yeah. Because I'm not here trying to open my phone to watch people get killed. Right. Yes, I know people get killed because I can turn on the TV. Right. But now because it's became something so that's some that's something so grand can be brought down to something, you know, that is so you know, something so sensitive being brought to the luxury of your cell phone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm is uh, something that I was really, really uh, shook by. Yeah. And then, of course, then you look at, you know, who's doing the who, to right. who's doing the what, right. and you see a man on the floor, and it's like your biggest fear because you see that person looks like your family, mm -hmm. that person looks like your father or your brother or your partner, and so... The visual side of that mm -hmm. was also very, very troubling. Yeah. So for me, I think this happens a few weeks before we kicked off Free Hiri I think for me, I felt like nothing even matters anymore. Mm -hmm. We just got to do what we need to do. Right. And we just got to get shit done. Right. You know. And that concludes part one of our two-part series. Hopefully you enjoyed that first part of our conversation. I really found Ida's process and her origin story to be really illuminating. And I've known her for quite some time. So some of this I've heard, but some of it I hadn't. So it was just good to understand how she was thinking. And, you know, when you've known somebody for as long as I've known her, it's always kind of cool to see how people are evolving. So hopefully you enjoyed that. Part two is already loaded. You can just continue on or take a break. Either way, it's there for you when you're ready. Thank you all so much for listening. And don't forget all the show notes are in the uh, section below along with some links. Take care. Mm -hmm.